0: And welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton. Peter and I are currently on our summer break, so we're digging into the archives to bring you some of our favourite interviews from season one. One poet who was fascinating to interview was Catherine Maris. Here's what she had to say to me back in March 2021 Catherine Maris has three collections of poetry, the most recent of which is The House with Only an Attic and a Basement from Penguin in 2018. In 2019, she won the Ivan Euritz Prize for Creative Experiment for the House of Atreus monologues. Also, a series of paintings and sculptures by Pete Swan, inspired by The House with Only an Attic and a Basement, opened at one paved court gallery in September 2020. She also writes essays and reviews, and after many years as a freelance writing tutor at the Poetry School and elsewhere, Catherine is now pursuing a PhD in Creative Writing at Durham University. Hello, Catherine Maris, and welcome to Planet Poetry. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so pleased you're able to come and speak with us today because I loved your book, The House Within an Attic and a Basement, which has got this one of those titles that you just want to pick it up. On the back cover, I thought it was interesting, Daljit Nagra said, This is the funniest book I've read in years. And I'm not saying it wasn't funny, but I also found quite a sad undertone to it for me. I don't know. What do you think about that quote? Well, um, it's the nature of the book
1: blurb, right? They serve a marketing purpose. Uh Um, And I think, like absolutely everybody, I have a lot of ambivalence about book endorsements. Every writer does. But I think, unfortunately, blurbs don't seem to be going anywhere anywhere. And Dalgit has had a lot of experience and has supported a lot of poets over the years. And he would know what kind of a blurb works as an effective soundbite, I guess. Um, I guess I've never set out to write a funny poem. I think my tone probably naturally towards something like maybe satire, and my mode is often actually self-satirical, like I'm making fun of myself more often than not. And if there's laughter, it might actually be a kind of uncomfortable laughter, mm, mm-hmm. because um, I do push my poems into uncomfortable territories, and I try to go as far as I can to the line, whatever yeah. that line is, without actually crossing it. Sometimes I write earnest lyrics, um, but this book was probably a different kind of project.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe you could read a poem here. And I was wondering about towards the beginning of the collection. There's one called the X Man, and it's one of a series, isn't it? Because we've got the H Man later on and the the A Man, and it feels as if it introduces some of the subjects that um that crop up, such as the role of girls and. Overbearing men and various other kind of little cross themes. Sure. Yeah. Well, the X Men is one of a
1: sequence of poems that I privately refer to as the Alphabet Males, which is sort of a play <laughs> on alpha male. Um, and the poems are meant to be light-hearted critiques of different kinds of male narcissism. So, hence the superhero-like titles. And but I think deep down I'm probably like a frustrated fiction writer. So these are little lineated stories in which different kinds of genres intersect. They're part biography, part tall tale, part satire, part flash fiction. Um, none of these alphabet male poems are based on anyone in particular. But people sometimes ask me if the X-Men is um, the X-Men who's an artist is based on Lucian Freud, um, but it isn't really. The writer daughters are probably some version of me the X-Man. His superpower was that his testicles manufactured sperm with exclusively X-chromosomes, and that was ironic, because not only was he a beast to women, but his 40 baby girls grew up seeking men like the father they barely saw unless they went to his studio to be painted, which wasn't okay with their mothers, who were not only jealous but guilty of giving birth to girls who were products of an X-chromosome-making monster and would soon suffer at the hands of other monsters with X-type sperm, thereby assuring the continuation of suffering. And meanwhile, all the girls became writers who slouched from sitting at desks
0: and being daughters and lovers of beasts. (laughs) It's one long sentence, isn't it?
1: Yes, I am not hundred percent sure I've noticed that before. <laughs> but I, I noticed it as I was reading it because obviously the book came out a couple of years ago and it's it's some time since I've revisited these poems, so I feel like a little surprised by them or something, and um and I thought, ooh, that's a hard one to find a breath, find a
0: place to breathe. <laughs> Is this the first X in the book? Because we've got a lot of X's. Is it to do with something that's been excised or Exited from uh, this kind of a sort of connotation of um, leaving something or canceling something out in my mind.
1: I think so. Yeah. And you know, you've got the Catherine wheel, which is a circle of figures. You have the X and the O, which is sort of a hug and a kiss, right? Um yeah. and I think the the wheel figure is a kind of, you know, it represents a kind of um, at least in one of the poems, a kind of zero, right? So uh, yeah. maybe there is something about erasing or excising in the book. And and I guess the idea of an ex partner comes up, but doesn't, but that comes up in a quite a fictional way um in that I um I have a poem about with the single n-word, the X N-word that comes up again and again. And oh, that's, yes, um, a yes. kind of cut and paste poem from a, a dating book I read somewhere. But yeah, even in that like the series of monologues, The House of Atreus, there's X X comes up in a postcode and X like exit. Yeah, I don't think I've really thought about it, but you're right. There's there are a lot of X's in, in the book. Yeah,
0: maybe I'm reading too much into it. There. There's certainly this theme of miscommunication or or, or bad communication. And We've got you know lovers who don't understand each other. Some fairly awful stories. A dating agency for married people offering it, offering it services and women being given advice on how to compete with an ex. Is that an idea that was, was in your mind or am I making that one up?
1: Well, no, that's actually a really astute comment because, um, I think the book is very much about unreliable narration and identification and projection and the distorted lenses through which I and probably everyone else perceives things. I think the book, I was just checking, I think the book has an epigraph from Freud oh, about yeah. identification, which I would, which I hoped might give the reader a clue that what follows is going to be delivered through a very subjective lens. Even the very first poem, which probably reads like a sort of confessional lyric, is full of red flags that are meant to indicate the narrator is extremely unreliable and isn't remembering it quite right, um, and she's not using terms correctly, and she's completing she's conflating a past trauma with a present trauma. Um, which is like not to say that there isn't some central truthiness to that tale. But the tale is told with such ugliness and provocation. So the teller becomes as narcissistic as the father figure. And, um, that's an example of the way, one of the ways I try to push narrative and point to view
0: and tone to their extremes. Would you, would you like to read the summer, the spike went into my?
1: Yeah. The summer day, the spike went into my. The summer day the spike went into my brother's head, as such things happened in the 20th century when the Freudian death drive was often accessed out of boredom, I learned from my doctor parents that scalps bleed profusely. Twenty years later, when Theodore and Cosima jumped on little Robert's bed and Theodore fell off and his white blonde head turned red, I said, scalps bleed profusely, and Rachel, his mom, thanked me for my composure. Robert's mom, Emily, who had always wanted to be a jazz singer or actress, and who always introduced me as a poetess, said she knew a couple who had a second child because their friend's child died in a freak accident. But back to the summer day, the spite grazed my brother's scalp. I slept beside him in his racing car bed, and my father woke me and slapped my face, thinking, I assume, of sex, whereas I was already thinking about death.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean about the um the unreliable narrator, as it were. Definitely. Like first this the
1: spike goes into the brother's head, but then we learn this, the spike only grazed the scalp. And then like the Freudian death drive, I don't think that's what the Freudian death drive means. I think the death drive is something much more like inaction rather than actually trying to kill yourself mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So that there's just like you just don't trust this narrator, I think. No one is heroic in my poems, least of all me. And almost none of the poems in the book are based on anything directly autobiographical. There's a, a sonnet about a doctor who says, good news, it's a demon. Um, <laughs> yes. And that one, right? The doctor who identifies the demon in that poem, I think it was a really kindly figure. Like, I think people mean well probably in the, in many of the poems. And, and that figure is based on, not on an obstetrician, but on a psychiatrist I saw when I had a bad episode of antenatal depression when I was pregnant with my daughter. The demon isn't the child, but it's something ugly and internal that gets externalized. And when people read that poem, they sometimes think it's about my son, but it's, it's like I, I just ex, I externalize this internal demon figure as a, I portray it as As a hulking teenage boy who needs care and attention and exercise. And the demon sort of serves a similar function to the Catherine wheel that gets carried around in different poems. So I'll read Demon. Demon. Good news for the doctor. It's a demon. I asked for its name. Was it no one? Was it superego? He said it wasn't those, but he couldn't guess the name. "'Who knows,' he said. "'It mightn't even be a demon. "'It's what we call a diagnosis by elimination.' "'Explaining he couldn't operate, "'the doctor said, "'Let's go ahead and medicate the hell out of it. "'Make it sleepy.' "'I named him Demon after his identity. "'I put him to sleep twice a day, "'one short, one long. Three times a week he did sport. "'He grew to six foot two. "'I said he was good. "'I went to the door of his room and left food.'
0: So you have a lot of fun with overheard conversation and there's some found poetry in here. And I noticed from in the back, you said that one or two of them were taken from emails. Were they actually verbatim from other people's emails?
1: Yeah, found poetry. Um, Maybe a third of the poetry in this book is found in one way or another. I, I wouldn't do it again, though. I think I got it out of my system in this book.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: I think... I was saying how I like to kind of push push the line and I was trying to kind of push things also with the use of the found text, I think, you know, and question what is, like, what's the boundary between self and other in a way. But mainly it was a way to explore voice because I'm obsessed with voice and I wanted to find a way to write lyrics that were plural and choral in some way. I wanted to find a way to share my voice with somebody else's and create something like a shared lyric or a new way of ventriloquizing and maybe de-emphasizing my own self-ness. I think a lot of poets are deeply interested in exploring the self in their poems, uh, where I wasn't that interested in doing that in this book. I wanted to make fictions and push voice as far as I could, sometimes using a modernist template, like in the poem Ladies' Voices, which is kind of based a little bit on the template of, of Gertrude Stein's little play, Also called ladies voices. And, um, yeah, sometimes there could be an element of satire, which comes from having an outsider status. So like maybe I was trying to capture something about English voice or something which, you know, which felt very different to my own voice. And I think it might be important as context to think that the book was made in the run up to the referendum and just after, and that I took the Brexit vote deeply personally, even though people had all kinds of reasons. But for me, I guess the insularity, I always felt at a gut level as though no one really wanted me here or my European-American children or their European father. There maybe was some element of satire in some of the found poetry, but also, again, that kind of wanting to be Wanting to be connected or wanting to, you know, there was probably a bit of both, some kind of longing for a connection, and at the same time, some sort of
0: outsider, satirical eye. Those are all reasons why I enjoyed it. I think there is, as you say, this element of lots of little fictions, and we are given so many interesting characters often in a very kind of sly way I mean I'm looking at this little one information from the headmaster which is kind of there was an incident on the river last week <laughs> what was this incident which we never actually get to know but there's lots of hints in there and in the end it's all fine because the teachers knew what they were doing and, and I could just picture this coming uh, in a sort of an email um, to the to the parents you know supposedly to reassure them and yet throwing up more questions than it answers and i, I I liked that kind of take on the uh, stiff upper lip, British understatement, or whatever. That, that's how I read it,
1: which I love, which I, I absolutely love. Like I loved that about the British voice, or something. Ever since I read Agatha Christie books, like I am capturing something that, in a way, I admire very much. But I think that poem, which was just severely cut from a very long letter. it's meant to emphasize that thing about miscommunication and distortion, you know, like, is that really how it happened? And I Mm. guess I use certain end words that are kind of sinister so that there's like a sub narrative in a way Mm. that was just me flirting with voice and experimenting with voice and taking on other voices.
0: This is a question I've asked other guests on Planet Poetry, and it's about form. Unlike the Book of Jobs, one of your earlier books, I think in this book, there is more experimentation perhaps with form. There's a lot of different things going on. I
1: think you have to kind of get started with the poem and then maybe the form starts to present itself to you. When I say Uh you, I mean me. (laughs) That poem, Demon, which turned out to be a sonnet, but it started out as a Sestina and I kept trying it as a Sestina and it didn't work. So Like something like 10 years later, I went back to it, and immediately it was obvious that it should have been a sonnet, but I just didn't see it back, you know, 10 years before when I was less experienced. But I think it's also kind of like you have to want to write in the form. My middle book, God Loves You, is full of sonnets. That was me as an American experimenting. It was an experiment for me to be writing sonnets and sestinas and pantombs and things like that. Um, Because I think at my age in the States, the people of my generation, like things like writing sonnets were not that available to us. It was like a particular kind of neo-formalist group who did that. They tended to be men and they tended to be on the kind of more conservative side of the spectrum and somehow moving here where people did regularly use sonnets still, you know, like it it just, it freed me up to feel like it was okay to write in forms, but I don't have too many forms. I do have, um they're sometimes called prose poems, but I actually think like, I don't mind how people want to label my work. I'm really not precious about that at all, but I'd say if it was up to me, I would call them more little stories. Mm. Like I call them, I would call them fiction. I think My second book, God Loves You had this sequence of prose poems that were, I'd say very much influenced by Morris Reardon's idylls in his third book, The Holy Land. Um, But these in this book, the house, I feel like they're just little, it was me trying to write little flash fiction as opposed to prose poems. They don't, didn't necessarily have that like torque or whatever it is that prose poems have. They were just more like little stories to me. Mm. I guess when people say forms, I, I somehow almost automatically seem to think that they're referring to received forms So I'd say I have, like, a mix of received forms and something like Ladies' Voices, which is in the template of a Gertrude Stein play. And I'd I'd like to read that one, I think, Mm. because... Mm. it also is an example of the use of found text, yeah. which we talked about earlier. It uses texts from a WhatsApp group for school parents, and it repurposes them using, as its structure, that playlet I referred to by Gertrude Stein, which she wrote in 1916. And I wrote my oh. little play 100 years later in 2016, oh. and I gave it the same title as hers. Yeah, uh, I'll read that one. Ladies' Voices, Curtain Raiser. Everyone has gone, but the barbecue is here. Is someone coming back for it? William is going back for it tomorrow. Ah, that belongs to William. William is going back tomorrow. What a successful weekend overall. Did anyone see a white china salad bowl? I'm looking for a plastic container with a red strip around the edge. Weren't we fortunate with the weather? Weren't we lucky? Wow, what a race. What a race indeed. Act Two. Accident on the M4 by the exit to the M25. We're stuck in it too. We are through. I'm driving Rupert, Henry and the dog. Are you there yet? You will be fine. I was caught too. The rain is driving at an angle. Where are you all? We're all here. Where are you? Act Three. First Brexit, now this. What a week. So sad. I feel the way I did last Friday, totally bereft. Those boys are lucky with their great British strengths, calm under pressure, humility, and humor. Nick was telling us how he read the Odyssey. That will stand them in good stead. Act 4. What a shame. Big loss. It's a very difficult time. Equally painful. I saw them laughing. Epilogue. His father has been given one month to live. He's not ill at all. Does anyone have Nurofen? Oh dear, was it raining? Gosh, I will miss it, and you, very much. Congratulations and best wishes for the future. What a fabulous memory. Wasn't it just such a special
0: and wonderful occasion? The baton is well and truly past. Thank you. Now I don't know the the Gertrude Stein piece. In what uh, is it just the shape, or is it the, the subject matter as well? Or have you kind of repositioned that? Oh yeah, it's just the shape. So she has it in um, four parts: the curtain
1: raiser, Act One, Act Two, Act Three, or epilogue. Uh, how, I mean, I changed the form a little bit, I, but I have I tried to keep the same number of lines in each section. So she had five sections: curtain raiser, Act Two, Act Three, Act Four. And then what she calls scene two, um, to make it seem kind of like it's ending in the middle, but I turned that into an epilogue. Gertrude Stein was at an opera in 1916 in Mallorca, and she just jotted down the chatter that was happening during the interval. So hers like makes, if I can say this, hers like makes no sense at all. Whereas I wanted to create a narrative, like I wanted to create a, I guess, because it's that fiction writer in me or something like I really wanted to create a narrative. So I created a narrative arc out of these completely unrelated fragments from a WhatsApp group over a couple of years, I guess.
0: Hmm. Now you've got a series of three short poems spaced through the collection, Catherine and her wheel, one, two, and three. I wanted to ask you about those and where they come from. I was was intrigued by this character who, you know, St. Catherine with the Catherine wheel. Is it about, well... You tell me where it came from. It feels like it comes to a kind of a nihilistic ending with this person. I felt quite sad about her in the end. Everything that she'd given to others that she'd kind of borne it
1: yeah i mean you're you're not wrong to see something like nihilism in it, but I think I see something more positive, like I seem to like to have women carrying things or something in. By poems, So I those prose poems in God Loves You, there were a series of six kind of lit, lit, written in a kind of gospel, biblical sort of language. And um, they were about this girl that carries this box around. And now there's this wheel in this poem. And I only really thought of that similarity now. Um, but I think the wheel is maybe the wheel is, I don't know if it represents anything in particular, but maybe it's shame or victimhood or something like that. And that one can make a decision to sort of lug this thing around with one. It documents three different points of this woman's life, you know, early before her marriage, and then later on, I guess, when she has children. Those two are little stories, like I was saying before, that I like to write little stories. And they're stories written in the third person. But then the final poem in the trilogy is narrated by the woman herself when she's old. And I sometimes wonder if it's like some older version of myself or something Encouraging me to like just get rid of this wheel, even the nihilism that one might feel that there's some kind of beauty in that. like in a way, there's a celebration of the zero-ness or the the nullness of things, the nada de nada, the Spanish expression, absolutely nothing, you know, that there's yeah. something beautiful about nothingness, and that the fact that one can find beauty even in nothingness, means that there's joy in something, isn't there? It's almost like live. Live seems to be the message. Just like, forget about this wheel and just live.
0: Catherine, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for coming onto the podcast and all the best with your projects. Thank you for having me, Robin. I learned a great deal when I was reading Catherine's poetry and and preparing for that interview, there's there's an intensity about her work, and I found what she had to say, in particular about making fictions and pushing voices, really new and refreshing. Now, you might notice that Planet Poetry is entirely free of adverts or sponsors' messages. That's because it's self-funded by myself and Peter Kenny. Our costs include paying for the recording and hosting platforms, and buying poets' books prior to interviewing them. So if you enjoy our podcast, you might consider buying us a cup of coffee or two on buymeacoffee.com slash planetpoetry. Better still, pledge a regular amount as a member, and you're really helping us to pay our bills. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash planetpoetry to slip us a tip, and we'd be ever so grateful. Thank you. So that's it for now. Watch out for more archive interviews from us and Peter and I are back with season four of Planet Poetry including all new interviews and our regular banter from October the 12th.